helping me. Um, greetings from Redeemer. Blessings. We're, we're super grateful for the table. We still have a lot of uh, folks who came from this church originally who are continuing to help Redeemer get off the ground. We're probably about 45, 50 people on a Sunday now, and um, we also had a freak accident. Our uh, co-pastor, Paul, had a skiing accident this week and broke his leg. He has to have surgery tomorrow, so if you think of him, pray for him, and uh, he's also our music leader, so we're going to be a little bit of a struggle here for a bit trying to figure that out, and I'm going to do my best not to fall off this stage because um, it is, it is kind of high, so... Um, again, thanks for having me. My name's Ryan Sutherland. If you're tuning in online, um, we hope you're well and uh, hope that you follow along and are able to participate in worship and, and uh, enjoy this morning with us. So um, as, as Maria introduced me, I'm originally from Montana and I planted a church about in 2006 and then my roots, as she said, go back quite a ways with the table because when Brad launched and came here from the well, I was his first church planting coach. And so we were having regular interactions and conversations, and I was praying for him and trying to encourage him and, and uh, was really tuned into what was happening with the table all through that time. And then when we moved to Longmont, this is the table that, or the church that we worshiped at for several months until Redeemer kind of started its thing before COVID. And so you guys are dear to my heart. This is the first time I've preached here, but um, I have participated in some other things. So I think we know many of you and it's just good to be here. It feels like home. Um, one of the things, when I planted a church in Missoula, Missoula is a lot like Boulder County, very, very liberal, very progressive, very, you know, it's a college town, and so um, churches and Christians, they're not exactly welcome in a place like that. You know, not everybody's excited to meet a, a Christian, and so as we started to plant our church, when we moved there, I didn't know anybody we were the, the only people we knew were, were uh, the other family that was planting with us, and then my wife and kids. And so we had to gather our launch team, and we had to gather people. It took quite a while. But one of the things I noticed about five years in, after we started having regular worship services and doing things that churches do, whenever I would meet somebody in a coffee shop or a pub or, or uh, just at a, a city networking event, and they would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a pastor. I would watch this wall just go up visibly, and they would start, you know, checking their watch, like looking for the nearest exit. There's something about saying that you're a pastor, saying that you're a Christian, that really causes people to feel alienated, to feel isolated from you. And so after about 15 years of pastoring that church, my wife and I decided we wanted to get back to that early stage of church planting where evangelism was a regular part of our life, where we could be more missional. So we moved to Boulder County and got normal jobs, and uh, now we just help out with this little church plant, but we really are, are trying to live life as missionaries. And I tell you all of that because at the outset here, I want to beg the question, what do you think of when you hear the word mission? What comes to mind? Or maybe the word evangelism. These are not sexy words these days. They have a bad rap. When we think of evangelists, we typically think of that televangelist on TV who's holding a Bible in one hand while the other hand is pointing to a hotline that you can call in and donate money to. 
We think of these guys that are building their own little kingdoms who are preying on the elderly or the vulnerable, and we just don't like the connotation of those kinds of words. But perhaps even more than baggage towards televangelists or baggage towards the word mission is an even deeper unease in our culture, a sort of PTSD, if you will, towards anyone or any group who thinks that they have the truth. And especially those who want to persuade others of their truth. People don't want to hear it, especially not here in Boulder County. And yet as Christians, mission is built into the very DNA of our faith. Jesus expects us to be missional. He calls us to share our truth. It's good news. It's the gospel. It's the only hope for people to be in relationship with God. We believe that if we're Christians. So given the cultural climate we live in, where do we find the motivation? Where do we find the power, the ability to be missional? There's a Christian author named Randy Alcorn. He and his family once took a trip to Egypt, and while he was there, his host took him to visit an abandoned graveyard located at the end of a garbage-lined alley. And the host pointed out one tombstone in particular, that of William Borden, 1887 to 1913. He was heir of the Borden Dairy Estate. So he was a millionaire by age 21. Back then, in the 1800s, early 1900s, that is a lot of money. But he gave, he renounced his fortune, and he gave nearly all of his wealth to missions. His heart's desire was to take the gospel to Muslims in China. And on his way to China, William stopped in Egypt to study Arabic, but four months later, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. And Alcorn writes this, I dusted off the inscription on the headstone of Borden's grave. And after describing his love for Christ and his commitment to and his love for the Muslim people and his sacrifices for God's kingdom, the inscription ended with some words that I wrote down on the spot and I had never forgotten to this day. The inscription ended with, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And then Alcorn writes, Lord, What's the explanation for my life? And that's the pivotal question. That's the pivotal question. If we don't have an explanation for our lives, a purpose, ultimate meaning, something bigger than ourselves, something that anchors us outside of this world, outside of our present circumstances, outside of our present cultural you know, soup that we live in, then missions is a pointless endeavor. Why bother? Lord, what's the explanation for our lives? And our passage this morning actually shows us the explanation, the motive that has been the drive of sacrificial Christians like William Borden. It shows us what ought to be the explanation of our lives. These parables teach us that the kingdom of God is so valuable that it is worth sacrificing anything and everything for in order to lay hold of. And yet, if we're honest, we struggle to lay hold of it. We struggle to even talk about Jesus with our neighbors in our workplaces, let alone risking our lives for it. And that makes us feel guilty, maybe even a little bit ashamed because we know that we should be doing it. 
So how do we shake off the guilt and find freedom from the shame and proper motivation? This text shows us the motive for mission. And so I just want to help you see three things as we think about these two parables, how they connect to our lives, how they connect us to mission. And the three things are this, that there is only one real treasure, that there is only one real response, and there's only one real reason, one treasure, one response, one reason. And so as we dig into this, I just want to give you a little bit of context for these two parables. This is actually a section of Matthew where Jesus is telling a series of parables, six in total, about what the kingdom of God is like. And these two parables are the shortest two in the bunch. And I know what you're thinking. Short passage equals short sermon, right? We'll see. We'll see what happens. See what happens. These are the two shortest of the bunch. And so here's what Jesus tells them. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. The kingdom of heaven is like this guy. He's out hiking. He's out wandering about. We can all relate to that. We love to hike here in Colorado. And he finds a treasure hidden in a field. I don't know if that's ever happened to you while you're hiking. Hasn't happened to me. Now, this may seem kind of weird to us because of that, but it was quite common in the ancient world for people to hide or even bury their valuables. There weren't banks back then. There were no safe deposit boxes. Even under your mattress wasn't safe because there weren't locks on the doors, and so thieves or bandits could easily break into your house and take whatever valuable things you had. And so hiding stuff was actually about the best way to protect it back in those days. And I like to picture this man as one of those guys or treasure hunters that we sometimes see when we go to the beach or we're at the park, and they're walking around with a metal detector, and they're like, you know, waiting for that tone of the, of the, the device to change, and they've struck gold or found something valuable. Except that what this man finds isn't just a coin here or a ring there or an earring or some little tidbit of treasure he finds a massive hoard. He finds a giant stash of golden jewels. He finds enough to set him up for life, and he knows it immediately. But he can't just take it because it's on someone else's property, and so that would be stealing. So he goes away from there. He sells everything he has. He sells his house, his boat, his cars, his books, his clothes, his dishes. He sells everything. He hawks his wife's wedding ring. Everything. All of it. Do you know why? Because he knows that, that that's what it will take to pull together enough cash to become liquid enough so that he can go back and become even richer, so that he can obtain something much more valuable. Can you picture it? And then Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who finds a very precious pearl on his travels and he sells everything else in order to obtain it. I'm not going to paint a picture of that one. It's really straightforward. It's easy to see that these two parables are really one parable. That's the point. That there are many things that compete for our attention, that tempt us to put our hope into, to invest our money in, to center our lives on, to sacrifice for. And yet Jesus' point is that there's only one real treasure. There's only one thing of value. 
the pearl, the kingdom of God, the gospel. It's the only thing of eternal value. It's the only thing that will give you a forever return on your investment. And yet if we're honest, and we know this, we have lots of other pearls. We have lots of other treasures, our little kingdoms. We have our homes, our cars, our stuff. We invent our safety, our security, our hobbies. Think about Colorado for a second. This is a place where everybody thinks that they're going to be saved by hiking, biking, skiing. All you have to do is drive by somebody's garage. And you're like, holy cow, I've never seen so much recreational stuff. I'm guilty of it too. And I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy these things. But we really invest a lot in our hobbies we invest so much time, so much energy, so much money into these things. Why? Because we so desperately hope that they will insulate us from pain. Or that they will bring us happiness, joy. That they will provide a fake pearl, which is the fantasy that we have of a good and safe life. A life where people like us, a life where people respect us, a life where we feel important, a life without suffering. A life of comfort. And Jesus says there's only room in your life for one treasure. Only room for one pearl. It will either be the kingdom of God or it will be something else. And so the kingdom is like the biggest, finest pearl. Purest pearl that any jeweler has ever laid eyes on. And it's yours for the taking. If you'll sell everything else, including all the other pearls you've ever owned in order to obtain it. There's only one pearl, there's only one real treasure, and everything else is worthless in comparison. Have you found it? Have you discovered it? Do you recognize its value? See, Jesus says that when you see the value of his kingdom, there's only one thing to do. There's only one real response to sell out completely. Sell everything, give up everything, risk everything so that you can lay hold of it. I read a story recently about a 26-year-old man named Ken who died after he fell into the frigid waters of the Chicago River. He was, uh, it was shortly after midnight. He was a visitor from St. Paul, and he was hanging out with two of his friends, taking photos of the river when he dropped his cell phone onto the ice below. Now, he did what any of us would do if we dropped our cell phone. We, he climbed over the railing to try to go retrieve it onto the ice below. But when he got there, he slipped and fell into the water. So one of his friends jumped over. She tried to save him. She, too, fell into the water. And when she yelled for help, the third friend also went out onto the ice and fell into the water. Ken was later pronounced dead at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. The second friend was pulled from the river two days later, also died. The third friend, thankfully, was rescued, hospitalized, and released. And the day after the tragedy, NBC Chicago was interviewing people about what had happened, and a young woman said, I guess I can understand the impulse. Your cell phone is sort of part of you. We are kind of tied to it, but it's only a cell phone. To risk your life for it is incredible. She's right. It is incredible. But we would probably all do it thinking we could retrieve it, thinking we would be safe. See, this young man and his, his friends risked it all and gave their lives for a cell phone. 
And this illustration shows us what not to risk our lives for, but it also sets up a deeper, more positive question. What would you risk it all for? One of my favorite books on mission is this book, Radical, by David Platt. And uh, I'm going to read just a little excerpt for you. So if you want to close your eyes during this time and kind of visualize what's happening in the story, you're welcome to do that. I'm just going to read a little story from here. Imagine all the blinds closed on the windows of a dimly lit room. Twenty leaders from different churches in the area sat in a circle on the floor with their Bibles open. Some of them had sweat on their foreheads after walking for miles to get there. Others were dirty from the dust in the villages from which they had set out on bikes early that morning. They had gathered in secret. They had intentionally come to this place at different times throughout the morning so as not to draw attention to the meeting that was occurring. They lived in a country in Asia where it is illegal for them to gather like this. If caught, they could lose their land, their jobs, their families, or their lives. I listened as they began sharing stories of what God was doing in their churches. One man sat in the corner. He had a strong frame and he served as the head of security, so to speak. Whenever a knock was heard at the door or a noise was made outside the window, everyone in the room would freeze in tension as this brother would go to make sure everything was okay. As he spoke, his tough appearance soon revealed a tender heart. Some of the people in my church have been pulled away by a cult, he said. This particular cult is known for kidnapping believers, taking them to isolated locations, and torturing them. Brothers and sisters having their tongues cut out of their mouths is not uncommon. As he shared about the dangers his church members were facing, tears welled up in his eyes. I am hurting, he said, and I need God's grace to lead my church through these attacks. A woman on the other side of the room spoke up next. Some of the members in my church were recently confronted by government officials, she continued. They threatened their families, saying that if they did not stop gathering to study the Bible, they were going to lose everything they had. She asked for prayer, saying, I need to know how to lead my church to follow Christ, even when it costs them everything. As I looked around the room, I saw that everyone was now in tears. The struggles expressed by this brother and sister were not isolated. They all looked at one another and said, we need to pray. Immediately, they went to their knees, and with their faces on the ground, they began to cry out to God. Their prayers were marked less by grandiose theological language and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Oh God, thank you for loving us. Oh God, we need you. Oh God, Jesus, we give our lives to you and for you. Jesus, we trust in you. They audibly wept before God as one leader after another prayed. And after about an hour, the room drew to a silence and they rose from the floor. Humbled by what I had just been part of, I saw puddles of tears in a circle around the room. How is it that people are able to risk everything, even their lives, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of mission, like these Asian believers, like William Borden, able to give away millions of dollars for the sake of missions, and eventually his life at such a young age? I think that for us, it's sometimes easier when we think about foreign missions or missionaries, it's easier for us to understand or maybe grasp how people like that can do that sort of thing or, or, or risk or sacrifice in those sorts of ways. 
because we play missionaries up in our minds as being extra special or extra spiritual or maybe extra sanctified. But why not us? Why not us? Why not right here in the U.S., right here in Colorado, right here in Boulder County? Why not us? What does it look like for us to sell everything and to risk everything? What does it look like for you? See, what Jesus is trying to show us here is that there is a direct correlation between our understanding of the value of God's kingdom and our participation or our experience of that kingdom. And at the same time, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't believe he's calling us to literally go out and sell everything we have as if that's going to somehow earn us a place in the kingdom. Also, that would make us look really weird here in Boulder County, right? People would be like, whoa, that just further isolates you from me, Christian. I don't think he's literally calling us to sell everything. These are two parables that are highlighting the great value of the kingdom in comparison to everything else. That anything of eternal value in the next life is going to cost us something. It's going to require sacrifice in this life. Let me say that again. That anything of eternal value in the next life is going to cost you something in this life. As we wrap up our time together this morning, I want to ask the question again. What then is our motivation? What's our reason for mission? What fuels us or frees us to sell out for the kingdom of God? And this is where I want to camp out. So far, I've left something critical out of this sermon. Do you know what it is? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the good news. See, when we read the parables of Jesus, we can't help but immediately try to, to put ourselves in the story, to figure out who's who and what's what in this story. It's the natural and it's a very important thing to do when you read Jesus' parables. What is Jesus trying to teach us? Who am I in the story, right? And so far, I've suggested that you are the man who found the treasure, you were the one who liquidated everything you had in order to buy the field and take possession of the treasure. You were the merchant who found the great pearl and sold everything you had in order to purchase it. And I've suggested that the kingdom of God is the pearl and it is the treasure. And I've intentionally led you down that road because it's the natural reading of these parables. That's where we immediately jump to. That's where we immediately put ourselves into the story. But you aren't the merchant. And you aren't the treasure hunter. And the kingdom of God is not the pearl or the treasure in these stories. Do you remember the first line from that great hymn? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch. His treasure. See, remember, Jesus is telling these stories to describe what the kingdom of God is like. And so he's actually telling these two parables about himself. He is the treasure hunter who found the treasure hidden in the field. And in his joy, he went and sold everything he had to buy that field. 
He is the merchant who found a pearl of such great value and he sold everything he had in order to purchase it. You and I are not the main characters of these parables. We are not the subjects, we are the objects. And if that's true, then this is such incredibly good news for us. This is what will empower us. This is what will fuel you for mission when you believe this. Do you see it? If we aren't the treasure hunter, and if we aren't the merchant, then that means we are the treasure. We are the treasure. We are the pearl of great value. And even more, it means that Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who had everything, sold everything, gave everything, risked everything. Why? So that he could obtain his treasure. So that he could bring you back to himself. Do you see what Jesus is describing here? He is describing a kingdom where you and I don't have to do anything to find our way in. We just need to be found by Jesus to lay hold of this kingdom. It's a kingdom where we are the most valuable thing to the one who is establishing it. We are the most valuable thing of the one who found us because he's sold everything. He gave up everything. He risked everything so that he could find us and redeem us and bring us back to his father. Now, Jesus Christ, by finding you and me, if you're here this morning and you are a believer, you are a Christian, you look at Jesus and you say, yes, I am following him, he has found you. Now, maybe there are some of you here today who are still trying to figure this out. Maybe you're still trying to wrestle with whether this book that we're reading can even have any relevance on your lives 2,000 years later, whether this man, whether he really did rise from the dead. One thing I want you to hear this morning if you are here, no matter where you're at, no matter how much faith you have or how little faith you have, Jesus is finding you. He is pursuing you. He is after you. And you are his treasure above all else. And if Jesus has found you, he's also inviting you on his mission. Mission is really an invitation to be about what Jesus is about. Jesus is on mission. He's out searching for more pearls. Now listen, here's the sad reality. Our culture is becoming more and more secular, especially in Colorado. And as our culture shifts, the church is the last place that the people you love, live by, work with will go looking for spiritual answers. It's the last place they will come to try to find meaning in their lives. It's the last place that they will... Uh, look for truth in. But they'll come next door. They'll join you for a meal, a coffee, a beer, a cocktail, a barbecue. It's becoming increasingly important for everyday ordinary Christians to live lives that are missional, lives that are provocative, lives that are generous, that are hospitable, that are invitational, that are incarnational. Church, you are God's pearl of great value. You are his treasure. I want to remind you this morning, he sold everything. He gave up everything in order to purchase you. And that means Christ is our pearl. He is our treasure. 
And his kingdom is so valuable, it is worth selling everything and sacrificing everything for. Not because we're trying to earn our way in, but because we're invited in, as we are, purely by grace. So what would our non-Christian friends and neighbors conclude is most valuable to us? Would they say, like they did about William Borden, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life? Or would they say something else? Father, as we uh, think about what your kingdom is like, we confess that we take it for granted. Lord, we confess that we are really easily attracted to the comforts of this world. And we're torn, Lord. We live in a tension of believing that we should be delighting in this world you've given us to steward and also the calls to sacrifice. And so that's just a tough tension to live in. And we need your wisdom and we need your grace. And we are so thankful that we don't have to get it right in order to get in. Thank you that you love us, that you've demonstrated that love in so many ways, namely through your death, through the gift of your son, And we pray that today, I pray for all who are here today, that they would leave here with the joy knowing that they are your treasure. For it's in your name we ask. Amen. Well, um, I love coming to the Lord's Supper every week. I'm so glad your church does this too. Redeemer does this as well. And I just want to remind you of what this supper is about. It's, it's, it's the total picture, the reminder to you that you are his treasure, that, that everything that needs to be done in order to, to satisfy the judgment for sin, uh, to, to take care of death forever and guilt and shame, that it's been done. That means that we can walk out of here free, as Maria reminded us earlier with the assurance It means that this is just something from his generosity, a generous gift to us that we just have to receive. And what that means, you know, the Lord's Supper is not for everyone. It's for people who look at Jesus and say, I want to follow him. I believe in him. I believe he is my Lord. It is the Lord's Supper. It's an invitation to feast with Jesus. Now, you may be sitting here going, well, how do I know if it's for me or not? It's really simple. When you think about whether or not you have a relationship with God or what it takes to have that relationship with God, do you just look at Jesus and say, that's the only way? It doesn't mean you have to have a great big faith. You can have a really tiny faith. But if your faith is in Jesus at all, then we would invite you to come and participate in the Lord's Supper, that you would come and receive it. And I, don't, I can't explain the mystery of the Lord's Supper. There is something mysterious happening here where Jesus promises that when you take this ordinary bread and you drink the, the cup, that you do participate in his death, that there is some sort of communing. Grace really is conveyed to you. There's something mysterious here. But we invite you, if you have even the tiniest smidge of faith in Christ, to come and receive his grace through the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus also took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant which is poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of all your sins. And as often as you come to the table and you eat and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim his death as the way to be right with God, the way to put an end to sin. See, this cup symbolizes that there is now nothing standing between you and God. All has been finished. Let me pray for us and, and uh, the way that I've been told you do communion here. Uh, it's coming up in groups of about 10, either side of the room, uh, same elements at both. I think that's gluten-free options. There's grape juice and wine, and um, you, can, you can come in faith. Father, as we come to this table, we are reminded that you love us beyond all measure, that we are your treasure, and you have proven it to us through your death. But more importantly, you have promised that we will share in your resurrection. So I pray now that as we come, Lord, that you would use this bread and wine to strengthen us, to grow us, to shape us, to change us, that we would commune with you, that we would draw near. In your name we pray, amen.